Uh, if you'd like to turn in your Bible, we're actually going to start in um, Ezekiel 38. Uh, we will go to 39, but we're actually going to start in 38. We saw on page 869. 869. And just while you're doing that, next, um, next Sunday in our normal cycle of the month would be a church lunch. But we're doing quite a lot of eating this month as it is. And it's also Father's Day. So we won't have church lunch next Sunday because it's Father's Day and we've got the men's barbecue. The breakout groups are meeting on the 20th. We've got the church meeting on the 21st. We've got Evro's ladies dinner on the 29th. So that's quite enough food for anyone. So um, just make a note of that. So what I'm going to do, I'm not going to read, I'm going to sort of, uh, rather than read the passage and then talk about it, I'm going to read and talk through the passage, if that makes sense. Uh, so that's where we'll, we'll, we'll start in a moment. But just a little story to, um, to start off with. I was, um, a few years ago, I had to go and collect some friends from uh, Canterbury. They were coming over to stay with us and uh, they didn't have a car. And uh, so I said, I'll come and pick you up. So uh, we were living in Hurstfield Point at the time. So I got at Hurstby Point, I got onto the motorway, I accelerated, so I got up to about 60 miles an hour, and then there was a clunk. And the engine lost power, and it, didn't, it just didn't sound very good. So I thought, oh, crumbs, I'm going to have to... So I pulled off at Gatwick, because there's a petrol station at Gatwick. I thought, well, I can pull in there, and uh, I can ring for the breakdown company to come, which I did. And uh, I thought, well, while I'm waiting for them to come, I'll go and get a coffee. So I walked into the shop. And uh, I got myself a coffee, I sat in the car, they turned up, uh, this, uh, I won't tell you which breakdown company it was, because, because, uh, because they were rubbish. But anyway, they came and, uh, and they had a look, and a, you know, lifted the bonnet, had a look underneath, and he said, oh, he said, I think you've got a, you've got a hole in your front exhaust, that's, that's what needs fixing. He said, I'll take you up to Quick Fit in Crawley, so we drove up to Quick Fit in Crawley, and they had a look and said, oh, yes. Yes, you need a new front exhaust, but oh, you need a couple of new tyres as well. Funny how it always happens, doesn't it? You take the car to the garage for one thing, and, and suddenly, oh, I think that needs to. So anyway, a couple of hours later, new front exhaust, new tyres, um, drove back onto the motorway, accelerated, clunk, oh, engine no. lost power. I'd literally, I'd done nothing. <laughs> Hadn't solved the problem whatsoever, but I did have a new exhaust and two new tyres. So I kind of carried on, I kind of limped along, I got onto the, I went around the M25, got onto the M2, heading down to Canterbury, and it was still making this awful noise, and I thought, oh, this is terrible, I really can't, um, so I pulled over onto the hard shoulder, uh, I rang the breakdown company again, and uh, they said, oh yeah, we'll send somebody else out, and it's one of those stretches where I was heading south, and the breakdown van, he was coming north, so we sort of waved to each other as he drove past on the other side of the carriageway. And then he had to go to the roundabout, turn around. So 20 minutes later, he arrived. So he had another look under the bonnet. He sort of checked everything out. He said, I can't find anything wrong. He said, I can't find anything wrong with the engine. He said, you know, are you happy to carry on? I said, well, if you, you, know, if you say it's safe to drive, I'll, you know, I'll drive it. So off I went again, 60 miles an hour, clunk, lost power. So I kind of limped all the way to Canterbury. I picked up these friends. I drove all the way back. And uh, we got home safely. The following morning, I thought well, I'll take it to the garage down in Sayers Common. I drove it down and, uh, and I, I got there and the guy said, look, we're, you know, we're really busy. We might not be able to look at it, but we might be able to look at it this afternoon. And then he just said, he just said, how's your oil? <laughs> and I had to confess that um, I had no idea. <laughs> because I, I don't know what you're like, but for me, they just go. They just go by magic. They just go, don't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, I think this is one of the things of... It's one of the consequences of growing up without a father, 
is no one showed me these. No one showed me these things. So I'm like, I just expect it to go. And uh, and if it doesn't go, it's a big surprise. But anyway, he said, "How's your oil?" And I very sheepishly and embarrassed, I'd say, "Well, I don't know, because I haven't looked for quite a long time. In fact, I probably hadn't looked since it had last been serviced." So anyway, he pulled the the dipstick. Wasn't the only dipstick present, but anyway, he pulled the dipstick out of the out of the thing. And uh, you know, sometimes when the oil is low, there's like a little bit of oil on the end of the dipstick. Yeah. It was bone dry. There was literally, there was literally no oil in the engine, which is why it was clunking, which is fair enough, because it had no lubricant. Somehow I'd driven it all the way to Canterbury and back without blowing it up, because it literally had no oil in it. Now, the point of the story is, there is a point, I'm not just playing for time here. <laughs> but, uh, the point of the story is, when I stopped at Gatwick and I walked into the, into the shop, what did I walk past? Oil, just gallons and gallons of, of oil, exactly, exactly what I needed, but I didn't know that that was what I needed, so I didn't pay any attention. I just ignored it, and uh, if only I'd known, you know, what the issue, I could have, uh, I could have saved a lot of money, and um, and all of that. Now I tell that story because I, you know, I talked to people, and I was overhearing a conversation at the cafe on Friday, not because I was eavesdropping, I was waiting at table and just kind of here. But um, there's a lot of concern in the world at the moment about what's going on, and people look at the look at the news, and they are disturbed and. Uh, Worried about the future, and said, you know, the kind of the current, you know, millennials and Gen Z are fearful about the future because they look to the future and think, well, we don't know. Everything seems to be in crisis. Well, we don't need to be um, in crisis. We don't need to be puzzled and perplexed. We don't need to be without hope because God, in His Word, has told us how things are going to play out. And our Bible reading this morning from Ezekiel 38 and 39 is hugely relevant to the times in which we're living. And I hope in the next few minutes I'll be able to explain why. Because sometimes we read through Ezekiel and you sort of, we sort of scratch our heads and wonder what on earth's going on. And I wonder what relevance does it have for us today? Well, 38 and 39 have huge relevance. Um, I just say this is the penultimate sermon in Ezekiel. Next Sunday... Uh, we finished. We're going to jump ahead to 47 and 48. So next Sunday, Ezekiel is done, which is a great shame because I've loved being in this book. But, um, but there we go. So context. The people of God are in exile. Ezekiel is in exile. They're in Babylon. They've been exiled because of their rebellion and disobedience. And God has spoken through prophets for hundreds of years and said, if you don't change your ways, this is what is going to happen. And they don't change their ways. And so that is what happens. They are in exile. And then as we've been um, reflected on before, the one thing they thought, well, whatever happens, the one thing that won't happen is Jerusalem won't fall and the temple won't be destroyed because that's God's eternal dwelling place. And then The unthinkable happens. Jerusalem falls and the temple is destroyed. So they are really in the, they're in the pit and potentially in the pit of despair. And as we've noted in the last few chapters, God has been promising he's going to do a new thing. He's going to give them a new spirit and a new heart. And in 38 and 39, we come to, uh, this is kind of a vision for the future. This is a message in which God speaks through Ezekiel and basically says, You're in the pit at the moment, but everything is going to be okay. Everything is going to be okay. The final victory is absolutely assured. 
Don't have any worries. You may be living through turbulent times. You may continue to live through turbulent times. But victory is assured. And uh, so let's read through um, 38. And I'll just make some comments as we, as we go through. And then we'll think a bit more about it. So uh, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog. The chief prince of Meshech and Tubal prophesy against him and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks in your jaws and bring you out with your whole army, your horses, your horsemen fully armed and a great horde with large and small shields, all of them brandishing their swords. Persia, Cush and Put will be with them, all with shields and helmets. Also Goma with all its troops and Beth Togamar from the far north with all its troops, the many nations with you. Get ready, be prepared, you and all the hordes gathered about you, and take command of them. After many days, you will be called to arms. In future years, you will invade a land that has recovered from war. So let's just stop there for a moment. So so Ezekiel is being shown a picture of something that is going to happen in the future. Uh, Many days, in future years, verse 8. This is something that is going to happen in the future. And what is going to happen is that the nations of the world are going to come against God's people. And uh, Gog and Magog and Meshech and all of these folk. Basically, the picture is that the people of God are surrounded on all sides. From the far north, from the far south. Cush is uh, down by Egypt. Uh, Gog, Magog, Meshech, they're up in the north uh, in, uh, in what is now Turkey. So basically, the people of God are surrounded And God is going to bring them against his own people. Uh, Verse four, I will turn you around, put hooks in your jaws and bring you out with your whole army. So God is instigating basically an assault on his own people. But this is not an assault, as we saw earlier in Ezekiel, that is the consequence of his people's disobedience. This is not a punishment Because of disobedience and rebellion, something different is going on uh, in this this case. Uh, But God is initiating it and the nations of the world are coming against God's people. After many days, you'll be called to arms. In future years, you will invade a land that has recovered from war, whose people were gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They'd been brought out from the nations and now all of them live in safety. Remember, we noted this a few chapters ago, that God's promise is that he would restore his people. His people would be scattered into many nations and then he would restore them. And we noted that that happened in 1948 with the founding of modern Israel. God has called his people back together. They've been brought out of many nations and now all of them live in safety. You and all your troops and the many nations with you will go up advancing like a storm. You'll be like a cloud covering the land. On the, uh, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. On that day, thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil scheme. You will say, I will invade a land of unwalled villages. I will attack a peaceful and unsuspecting people, all of them living without walls and without gates and bars. I will plunder and loot and turn my hand against the resettled ruins and the people gathered from the nations, rich in livestock and goods, living in the centre of the land." Uh, Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish and all her villages will say to you, have you come to plunder? 
Have you gathered your hordes to loot, to to carry off silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods and to seize much plunder? So the position of God's people in this vision is of a people who have been restored. The ruins have been rebuilt. They are once again living in a land of promise and a land of plenty. Uh, Gathered from the nations, uh, verse 12, rich in livestock and goods, living in the the centre of the land. This is the people of God living in the promise. And yet, uh, the nations around are deliberately and intentionally attacking. Verse 14, therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, this is what the sovereign Lord says. In that day, when my people Israel are living in safety, will you not take notice of it? You will come from your place in the far north, you and many nations with you, all of them riding on horses, a great horde, a mighty army. You will advance against my people Israel like a cloud that covers the land. In days to come, O Gog, I will bring you against my land. So you see, God is initiating what's going on. This is not, as I say, it's not because the people of God have been disobedient and rebellious. The people of God in this vision have been restored. They're living in promise once again. But God says, I will bring you against my land. Why? Not for punishment. I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. So what God is doing is he's basically saying, showing the nations of the world that his name is holy. Remember a couple of chapters ago, I think Joel preached on it a couple of Sundays ago about God's holy name. And God restoring the holiness of his name. And God is, is he's allowing this situation, not so that his people will be punished, but so that his people will be shown to be victorious because he has won the final victory. He allows this thing to rise up so that he may show himself holy. Verse 17. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Are you not the one I spoke of in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel? At that time, they prophesied for years That I would bring you against them. This is what will happen in that day. When Gog attacks the land of Israel, my hot anger will be aroused. No, this is not God's anger against his people because they've been rebellious. This is now God's anger against the nations who have opposed his people. My hot anger will be aroused, declares the sovereign Lord. In my zeal and fiery wrath, I declare that at that time there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, every creature that moves along the ground and all the people on the face of the earth will tremble at my presence. The mountains will be overturned, the cliffs will crumble and every wall will fall to the ground. I will summon a sword against Gog on all my mountains, declares the sovereign Lord. Every man's sword will be against his brother. I will execute judgment upon him with plague and bloodshed. I will pour down torrents of rain, hailstones and burning sulphur on him And on his troops and on many nations with him. And so I will show my greatness and my holiness. And I will make myself known in the sight of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. I will turn you around and drag you along. I will bring you from the far north and send you against the mountains of Israel. Then I will strike your bow from your left hand and make your arrows drop from your right hand. On the mountains of Israel you will fall, you and all your troops and the nations with you. 
I will give you as food to all kinds of carrion birds and to the wild animals. You will fall in the open field, for I have spoken, declares the sovereign Lord. Uh, Pick up in verse 21. I will display my glory among the nations and all the nations will see the punishment I inflict and the hand I lay upon them. From that day forward, the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God. And the nations will know that the people of Israel went into exile for their sin because they were unfaithful to me. So I hid my face from them and handed them over to their enemies. So they fell by the sword. I dealt with them according to their uncleanness and their offences and I hid my face from them. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will now bring Jacob back from captivity and will have compassion on all the people of Israel and I will be zealous for my holy name. So that's the big picture. Uh, The people of God are going to be assaulted by the nations of the world and it'll be assault that God allows And he allows it because through this assault, he will show himself holy and he will declare his holy name. And uh, when we get to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, we pick up the same language when John in the vision that he is shown sees the same thing. That God establishes his full and final victory in Revelation chapter 20. I'll pick up in verse seven, but this is. It's a thousand year period in which Jesus returns and reigns. Then when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulphur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Both visions are visions given to God's people in a time of crisis in order to assure them of God's final victory. Even though they find themselves in the pit, John is writing in exile, in Revelation, is writing to churches that are being persecuted, to Christians who are being oppressed and put to death and The vision is, don't worry, the final victory is assured. Don't worry, the final victory is assured. But the picture is that things are going to get worse before they get better. The picture of Ezekiel is God showing Ezekiel a picture of a time when the nation will have been restored. And they're living in that land of promise once again. And they're probably thinking, well, this is this is great. This is wonderful. We're enjoying the presence of God. We're enjoying the fruits of relationship with God. But then suddenly they're oppressed by their enemies again. But it's an oppression that that God allows. So let me just uh, speculate and reflect and think about, well, how does this how does this apply to us? Well, let me suggest that we perhaps are living. We are living in days where if I can take the language of, of Ezekiel and Revelation, that. You know, Gog and Magog are on the rise once again in our in our culture and in our society and around the people of God. There currently is is an oppression that has risen up very quickly. It's an oppression all around us and the forces of evil against God's people and against the church are are seem to have been given, you know, um, just uh, permission 
to do their worst. And our culture has changed and is changing very, very rapidly. And the things that we hold dear are now things that are very dangerous for us if we choose to promote them and to speak uh, about them. Uh, the, the Gog and Magog of our times are the, the secular culture in which we live and the, just the political correctness that dominates our society and informs our world. And how rapidly things have changed. I was just reflecting Ezekiel 38, 11. I will invade a land of unwalled villages. I will attack a peaceful and unsuspecting people, all of them living without walls and without gates and bars. And one of the things we've been reflecting on on Wednesday evenings as we've been looking at this book, The Church of Tomorrow, is that for a thousand years or more, we've lived with this idea of Christendom. That, you know, we live in a Christian nation. Europe is Christian. We're all Christians. We just have to herd the flock. And uh, almost without our noticing it, uh, we've been attacked. He says, I've made a land of unwalled villages. Almost unnoticed, the church has allowed uh, the forces of political correctness and secularisation to invade and to, and to come into the church. And suddenly we find ourselves in a situation where things that, when I was a child, were considered just the norm are now seen as offensive. I was just reflecting, 30 years ago, a previous government passed a piece of um, education legislation uh, that included, uh, you may remember, Section 38. And section, this is the 1980s, Section 38 uh, forbade the, uh, the promotion of uh, uh, homosexuality in schools. That's just 30 years ago, a government passed that, you know, passed that legislation. And of course, it was absolutely hated and resisted and, and overturned. But now we find ourselves with the complete flip side the complete flip side that, uh, and let me, just, let me just say, because immediately that I've said this, and if anyone's picked this up um, online, I'll be in, I'll be in trouble. But, <laughs> but there we go. Um, we're all made in the image of God. We're all created in the image of God. His, his love for every single human being is, is unconditional. And it's beyond our imagination. And, and, it, and, it, and it, is, it is profound. Uh, and so when we, you know, we kind of make these distinctions, we say these things because we believe they're in, in God's word. It's, it's not to do with, uh, with, with hatred and it's not to do with devaluing someone. It's just saying, actually, we're all created in the image of God, but we're created in a particular way by his, uh, by his design. And uh, when I was, uh, so this, this, you know, say this legislation, Section 38, 38 in the 1980s was, you know, was opposed. And now we find ourselves in a situation where the very reverse is the case where if you if you don't promote alternative lifestyles, then you're in trouble, and it's and it's the complete flip side. I was um, we heard on Thursday evening at filling station. You may have seen it in the news. Um, uh, a teacher, um, Joshua Sutcliffe, who um, uh, I mean I, th- I think he he's basically been banned from teaching. He's a maths teacher. He's been banned from teaching for two years, and. Um, Essentially, you can read the report. It's the teaching regulatory authority that have banned him from teaching for two years. I read the report. I, was, I, went, I went home on Thursday night and as tired as I was, I read the 36-page report from the, from the TRA, uh, uh, basically banning him. And um, I, think, I think perhaps he might not have done himself any favours when you read the detail of the report. But essentially, what happened was he was teaching a class of girls and in the class was a girl who was identifying as a boy. 
So she wanted to be addressed as he or him rather than as she or her. And, and the school were aware of that and they were kind of happy with that. And, um, and in this class, the girls had done, they'd done something well. And there's, when you read the report, there's, there's a kind of, there's a kind of distance of, was it, was it two girls? Was it a group of girls? What was the whole? But essentially what he said was, well done girls. And the girl who was identifying as a, as a boy went home and complained to her parents that she had been addressed by the, by the wrong pronoun. And that basically kick-started this whole process whereby this guy's been banned from teaching for two years. Now, there's a lot more to it. I mean, if you've got nothing better to do, just Google Joshua Sutcliffe and you'll find the government report with the 36 pages of evidence and witness statements. And I mean, it's, it's very detailed. But essentially, that's how it started because that's... That's the culture, that's the world in which we, that we live now, where, where the truth of God is not tolerated. The truth of God is now offensive because what, what triumphs truth is how I feel. What I feel is more important than, than what, may be, what may be truth. And that's the, the kind of the culture that we are, that we are living in and it's getting worse it's getting worse. Some, you know, the things that I preach from this, well, it's not really a pulpit, is it? From this desk. You've never seen it. If you're listening online, we don't have a pulpit. We just got to have a wooden desk, which weighs a ton. You should try carrying this thing around. But anyway, the things we preach from here, because my responsibility when I stand behind this desk is to, to try and explain what's in this, in this book. Um, but uh, the more and more we do that, it's the, the messengers that are getting shot. But actually, the message is, you know, is, it is the same. And, um, folks, it's going to get worse. It is going to get harder to preach God's truth. And those of us that do are going to find ourselves getting into, getting into trouble. Uh, because our culture has, has risen up against um, the truth of, of God's word. And we've kind of let it happen. I've, I've really, as I say, this verse 11... Uh, you know, I will invade a land of unwalled villages. We've just sort of let it happen. The church has allowed it to happen. And uh, there was a comment made on Thursday evening that it's a, it's a good thing for the church to be in the world. It's not a good thing for the world to be in the church. Uh, and that's what has happened um, so much and so, uh, so sort of profoundly. And our, our world is getting a darker place. Spiritually, things are, you know, are becoming darker but that's why Ezekiel is given this vision. That's why John is given his vision in Revelation. It's to say, well, you know, don't, don't be surprised. Don't worry that these things are happening. I'm allowing these things to happen because I'm going to demonstrate that my name is holy. I'm going to demonstrate that my name is holy. And one day God will do that. And so we don't, you know, I don't worry about the future. Don't worry about what's happening. Don't worry about getting into trouble for speaking truth. Don't worry about... If you end up in prison for speaking truth, don't worry, it's temporal. It's, you know, we're not here forever. Uh, we're here for a while and we've eternity to look forward to. And what Ezekiel is being shown is this assurance of final victory. And that's what we know. And so that's why we don't worry. Let me just um, finish with, um, have I preached long enough? Yeah, probably, probably. It's very hot, isn't it? So I was just, uh, that's an unusual thing to say, isn't it? I just was, I was waiting for somebody to say no, but um, that didn't happen, did it? That was that was wishful thinking. Anywho, let me just—I uh, just—I think I may have read this uh, a couple of weeks ago, but I'm going to read it again if I did. And uh, 
But in the introduction to um, this book, The Church of Tomorrow, uh, John McGinley quotes from uh, a a guy called W.T. Stead, who wrote, it was an eyewitness account of the 1904 Welsh Revival. So if you don't know, in 1904, there was a a revival broke out in the nation of Wales that saw 100,000 people come to faith in Christ in, um, uh, within a year. 100,000 people came to faith in Christ within a year. It was a, an amazing revival. But before that happened, there was just a, a spiritual darkness over the nation. And this is what W.T. Stead wrote. He said, it is ever the darkest hour before the dawn. The nation always seems to be given over to the evil one before the coming of the Son of Man. The decay of religious faith, the deadness of the churches, the atheism of the well-to-do, the brutality of the masses, all these, when at their worst, herald the approach of revival. Things seem to get too bad to last. The reign of evil becomes intolerable. Then the soul of the nation awakes. So we should be, uh, you know, we should be on our knees crying out to God, but we should actually be excited because we know how this is going to play out. We should be excited because God has assured us of final victory. It's only getting darker because the light is coming. And that's God's promise. And let me just finish with some words of encouragement from Romans. Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 8, verse 28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Let me just pause for a moment because we just need to note with verse 28, uh, because sometimes we may have an argument with the Lord about this, because he says, in all things, not in some things, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Now, sometimes we may stop and pause and think, well, well, I love you, Lord, but what's just happened to me and what is happening to me doesn't feel like good. Well, the Bible's either true or it isn't. That's the thing. You've got to make your choice. Is what I read inspired by God or not? And uh, you've got to make your choice. So if you think, well, it, well, it's not, well, then you can say, yeah, well, that's not my experience, so I can dismiss it. But if it's true, then it's true. So in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. What does that mean? Is it that God's working for our happiness? Do you think Paul thought that in Philippians when he was languishing in prison with, you know, other prisoners' rubbish being dropped through the grill above his head and no food and uh, in poverty and chained to a guard and expecting to be killed? Do you think he thought, oh, this is lovely? (laughs) Thank you, Christy. (laughs) Probably not. But he knew that in all things, God was working for his good. Because what is, what's, what's the good that he's working for? Is that, that we might be conformed to the likeness of his son. That we might become more like Jesus. Uh, when I've you know, looked back over the seasons that we've been through as a, as a family, and I thought, well, how is this good? And I thought, well, has it made me more Christ-like? That's the, you know, the, the, the pain of it and, uh, the, you know, all, all of that. Has it made me more Christ-like? Has it made me more dependent on the Lord? Has it made me 
look to him more often and more passionately. And if it has, well, even though it's hurt, that's been for my good. So God is working all things for our good. And um, sometimes when we've been through, through really, you know, just really painful times, I've, I've said, Lord, thank you, which seems sort of a bit masochistic, doesn't it? But I've said, Lord, you know, thank you that you think you think that I'm strong enough to hold on to you to get through this. Does that make sense? It's like, thank you, Lord, for, for, for putting me through this time of testing because A, you think I can cope with it and B, because you think it's necessary because I've got so many rough edges to be knocked off and so much rubbish to be, you know, to be cleared out. But that's the, it's funny to be grateful for a suffering, isn't it? But it's because, I don't know why I started saying this. I didn't really mean to, but there we go. Um, God is working all things for our good. And the good is that we should become more Christ-like. Because one day we, we, will be, we will be like him, 100%. When we're with him in glory, we will be like Jesus. We'll be perfect in every way. I can't wait. Well, I can wait. Don't kill me. I can wait, but, um, but I can't wait. I'm really excited. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Why are we so fearful of what other people think? Why are we so fearful of political correctness? Why are we, we are so fearful of being told what we can think and say and do as the people of God? If God is for us, who can be against us? Uh, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Uh, we started this morning with that lovely picture that um, Joel had this morning as he was praying of Jesus, you know, handing out his treasure handing out gold coins and yet behind him being this huge treasure that God wants to lavish on us. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Remember the picture that Ezekiel is shown of the people of God living in the promised land and a land of prosperity. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? We are, you know, we are condemned. I was, um, I was talking to a friend yesterday who is uh, involved uh, sort of front line in politics and and takes a beating for their Christian faith and, and every time they put their, their sort of head above the parapet in sort of public life and to stand for public office they know that they will you know a ton of bricks will come down on them because they have a Christian faith who will bring any charge against those whose God has chosen it is God who justifies Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for... Isn't this good news? This is good news. Our Jesus is at the right hand of God and is praying for us. Isn't that a beautiful thing? You know, we pray for each other. Jesus is praying for us. Jesus is praying for us. He he knows our lives. He's looking and he's praying to the Father for us. He's saying, Father, look at my, you know, look at my friends. Help them. Jesus is praying. How beautiful is that? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That's the, the age that we're living in with the rise of this modern Magog and Gog is that as Christians, we are considered sheep to be slaughtered. But no, verse 37, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than conquerors. We're not just conquerors, we're more than conquerors because of the cross, because of what Jesus did, because death has been defeated, sin has been defeated. I am convinced, are you convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's good, isn't it? That is good. That is, that's where we stand. That is our, you know, that's our promised land. That's our promised land. We live in this land of, of blessing and we're now in a season where, you know, the, the, the powers of Gog and Magog are rising up against us. But they're rising up against us in order that God can declare his full and final victory. Nothing can separate us from God's love. No one can condemn us. We stand with the risen Jesus. He is Lord. He is seated at the Father's right hand. And we choose to love him and to obey him and to make him known. And um, yes, thank you. Amen. Amen.